warm welcome again, as I said, to those that are visiting. When I see visitors turn up, particularly on sermons like we're about to go into, I'm like, oh no, oh dear. But uh, you'll enjoy your you'll enjoy your your church a lot when you go back after uh, wait because we're doing the series on Revelation. If you are visiting, um, and so that means as a, I haven't. We ceremonially raised the lectern at the start of the series, uh, and it stayed pretty high because we're kind of more doing lectures, uh, and then next week's our final sermon on Revelation. Then we're going to go back uh, to a normal service in inverted commas. And so we do these things from time to time where uh, we just lean into certain things. And so uh, at the moment, we're leaning into a slightly more um, preaching-orientated season in our church around the book of Revelation. And uh, it's been lovely hearing a lot of positive feedback as we've gone through this book um, because we've been really aiming to, uh, we've called it Rediscovering Revelation because we want to rediscover Revelation by anchoring it in its historical context. What did this book mean for those that were hearing it for the first time? And when you get that, then you can look at its application to our context and to our lives. That's where it begins. Um, And so uh, I know that many of you have been challenged over the last, uh, how many weeks, six weeks now? Uh, I have, I've been really challenged. And that's what the book of Revelation does when you read it in its historical context. Uh, it's, it's challenging because uh, it's easy, it turns out, to place our faith uh, and loyalty uh, in the empire, in the beast. And that may look like our hope or our security in money or career or popularity. And we can easily center our lives around tribes that are left or right politically, or we can have our lives centered around some cause or even a sports team or hobby. That basically just sees our allegiance to Jesus wane and, uh, and fall lower than the highest priority that this book of Revelation is challenging it to be. And so Jesus calls us out of that empire thinking, and this book does that, and calls us to be orientated around him and his kingdom. Uh, And uh, I also hope that you've been comforted and reassured, I have, as we've looked afresh at the goodness of God and at the sovereignty of God and at the justice of God. Um, And more than anything, my hope is that this book has stirred you, and we're going to keep stirring this up, hopefully, as we go through today, to this deep commitment, like I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. I'm going to stay, like I'm going to have a fidelity to Jesus and allegiance to Jesus that's red hot. In spite of all the cultural pressure around us to, uh, to, to dial it down and to have focuses on all sorts of other things and have just Jesus bolted on a little bit to our lives. I, I, I hope and I know that many of us are like, no, Jesus, you first. And, and you know, I've been a Christian a long time. <laughs> And I've been in full-time ministry for 19 years. And over that time, I've seen what I thought were red-hot Christians that would never cool down. I've seen them cool down. And I've seen them wane, and I've seen them take off ramps, and many people aren't worshipping today in this sort of gathering. breaks my heart. Um, And the church, you know, we've got to do our best as pastors to help create an environment where it's easier to stay faithful to Jesus. But you're here for an hour and a half on a Sunday, that's just like the equivalent to running through a shower. If you think that's somehow going to form you, it's, a, it's an important and a holy habit to come to church. Good on your legends. But that's different than hardcore allegiance to Jesus and learning his way. I want to be with you, become like you, do what you did if you're me. That's a great, that's a life rich worth pursuing. And so uh, the question's got to be, what about the future stuff? Ah, all you guys have talked about is, to, you know, about the critique of empire, um, 
and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's like, well, when are you going to talk about what happens in the future? Well, it's like, well, the book of Revelation actually just focuses pretty much on the critique of empire. Um, but in the last couple of talks, including this one, we are going to begin to look at the hope that Revelation presents in, in our future in the context of the victory of God. And we've got an amazing guest speaker, Martin Day, who will be finishing our series and speaking on that next week. But here's what I want to say in terms of what Revelation does predict. The only thing in Revelation that is truly predictive is that John the Revelator predicts a massive triumph of the Christian faith over the Roman Empire. Do you want to go to the next slide, uh, Ramon? I love this. He mentioned, we've mentioned this the last couple of Sundays. You know, at the moment, the Roman Empire's ruins. You can visit it. The Christian church continues to march forward. And it's like, and it has throughout the ages. I've got a little picture of the Middle Ages there, a little church there, and of churches around the different nations of the world right now. The only thing in Revelation that's truly predictive is that, is that there's a massive triumph of the Christian faith over the Roman Empire. That's the one thing that John the Revelator is, is clearly pointing to. And I'm like, it's, that's incredible. Because when the original hearers heard this letter, it would have been like, there's just no way that's going to happen. <laughs> have you seen how powerful this empire is? Like, there's just no way the Christian church is going to triumph over the Roman Empire. And uh, next minute, <laughs> it's like, mate, unreal. The Christian faith has triumphed over the Roman Empire, and it has endured every other empire ideology and philosophy since. It's endured the Middle Ages, and the church will endure over this secular age. And honestly, persecution's one thing, but I think that one of the greatest evidences to me that the Christian faith is legitimate is that if it can wade through and prevail over Western individualism and consumerism, then if it can, if it can survive that sludge, crikey, that's saying something about the power of the Christian faith and of the church. And so we, uh, in this environment, choosing to learn to live a countercultural life, a, a life of rather uh, insane individualism, a, a life of loving one another, a life where it's not about my autonomy and freedom. It's about laying down my freedom so I can serve others. Slowly learning to live a life of love, of cruciform love, of sacrificial mission, of generosity and blessing. That's what we're all about. And that's the road that leads to life. That's the path that leads to life. Hallelujah. So Revelation, as I've said a whole bunch of times, doesn't predict geopolitical events to look for. To indicate when Jesus is coming back, that's a huge adventure, and a massive adventure and missing the point. It does, however, give us the broad strokes on what the beautiful Christian hope is. Now, this morning we're going to dive into a few theories that people have around how that will look based from our text today from Revelation chapter 20. But if you want to anchor yourself in good Christian theology, all you need is this. Next slide. <laughs> we're going to get to that but in a second. Here's the good Christian theory. All you need to know is Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Hallelujah. That's all you need to know to have a good, solid, orthodox eschatology as well. Now, it's missing a couple of key pieces of that hope, which are essential to our Christian hope, which I'm going to unpack in the sermon. But that's, it's good enough if that's all you want. Um, but I'm very keen for us to build a culture here where we have sharp minds and soft hearts. I'm not a huge fan of, like, hey, let's just keep it simple. Like, I think it's a good starting point. But Paul's like, hey, it's time to actually move beyond just getting the milk and start eating some meat. 
And so I'm like, yeah, let's be clear on the basics and let's not lose sight of that. But we're also called to love God with all of our minds. And so to engage with the book that's uh, we were 2,000 years removed from its context in different languages, different genres, requires us to do some work. And that work, if done well, will lead to a deeper faith, a clearer conviction, and a great vision of God's character that will lead to a great life of worship and devotion to Him. As I nerd out on Bible stuff and as I've done all my studies, my love for God has increased. I love Him even more. So we're going to now just look at a three-minute video that gives a little overview. This is from the Bible Project, guys, of where we're at so far in terms of what we've covered in the last couple of weeks. And this will also do a lot of the work of exegeting Revelation 20 that we're about to jump into, which gives me some freedom to go into the weeds a bit. But let's have a look at this video. This gives us a little bit of context about what's, uh, what we've been looking at. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations, and she's called Babylon the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false god. This isn't something limited to the past, or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history, and Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest, and now it's depicted as a final battle, and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl, where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse, and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood, before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life, and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And 
so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. So that's from uh, the Bible Project guys. They've got a two 10-minute videos that give an overview of Revelation. So for all our guests today, that's probably the easiest thing to do to try and get your head around what we've been about. Second option is to wade through the last five sermons, uh, which is good. And, and I'm building on stuff from the last five sermons, so I'm going to presume that you've heard them. Let's jump into our text today, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones and those on, seated on them were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or all their hands. We told you last week what the mark was. Uh-huh, that's a teaser for someone that so like, oh, I wonder what it is. Well, I have to listen to the sermon. We worked it all out. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection over those the second death has no power and they'll be priests of God and of Christ and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Hallelujah. All right, let's uh, dive in here. Now this passage produced a fair bit of head scratching. What we're going to do because we've looked at the Bible Project video is dive into what the heck is this thousand years whole thing about, Right. Now, all of this stuff is called eschatology, and uh, this is uh, helpful to a little term to have in uh, your back pocket. Eschatology simply means what you believe about end times. So what's your eschatology? And uh, it's a cool word. Now, some of you guys already are now like, oh, Lord, why did we come to church today? Boring. Who cares? It'll all work out. And I'm just like, yep, yep, on one level, what will be will be. But everyone has a view on how things are going to pan out. And to be really honest, your eschatology really matters. What you believe about the future impacts how you live in the present. Revelation is written to give you great hope and confidence in the victory of God and the promise of Him renewing all things. And this impacts how we live today, both in our head, our heart, our hands. Orthodoxy, right thinking and theology, leads to orthopraxy, right action, right behavior. So there's a bunch of views on this thousand year stuff. I'm going to present the three different views on the thousand years and share why I have landed where I've landed, but I hold it lightly. I've studied myself into humility on a whole lot of issues, uh, including this one. And we are going to get into the weeds a little bit here. Next, uh, as I said, we'll be, uh, we'll be changing gears in a little while. And the other thing as well, I'm going to remind you for my first sermon, if you disagree with me, fine. We're not into group think at Bay Vineyard. Um, as I said in my first sermon, you're wrong on lots of things. But, uh, but <laughs> that's just a joke as well. Um, but it's good for us to look at all these different things. And if you disagree with me, at least you know what you disagree with. But at least hear me out. So this passage is that we have this concept of the thousand years. The millennium refers to this, this period of a thousand year reign of Christ. It's been very difficult to interpret and has been the source of debate amongst three schools of thought. 
next slide. There we go. Uh, so you've got premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Premillennialism has two different branches. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. They just relate to different ways of interpreting this passage. So let's have a look at these three. So the first one is premillennialism. Next slide. There we go. So this uh, sees Christ's return as occurring prior to a thousand-year reign on earth. Um, and the primary reason for this understanding is the way in which chapter 20 appears to suggest a millennium that follows the last battle portrayed in chapter 19. Um, it doesn't attach any particular significance to the place of Israel. It rejects the concept of a rapture. Many credible biblical scholars and teachers have advocated this view, including George Ladd, which informed a lot of vineyard theology, uh, D.A. Carson, John Piper. So premillennium, you've got historic premillennialism. <laughs> the Bible nerds are loving this, and there's a few of you already like, oh, Lord, how long is this going to go for? So we've got historic premillennialism, which is this. Um, and uh, and no, I've got no problem if people want to land here. Uh, I can see biblically why uh, people would uh, land here, um, sweet as. However, there's another branch of this premillennial view called premillennial dispensationalism. Why they can't just come up with names that are a little bit less of a tongue twister, I'm not sure. Now, this is the one that's, I, I talked a lot about this in my first sermon, right? Uh, I talked a lot about how this premillennial dispensational view came to take traction. It's very recent in terms of church history. It's the last couple of hundred years developed by John Darby in the 19th century, divides the biblical history up into different ages. I've, I don't want to, I'm not going to repeat my talk. If you, you need to, if you, if, you dis, if you land here, but you didn't listen to that first talk, you need to listen to that first talk because I'm not going to repeat it here for everyone's sake. Um, unfortunately, in my opinion, most Western charismatic Pentecostal Christians have had their views on end time informed by this most recent view. Um, and, but there's just so little biblical weight to it. One scholar uh, I heard said, there's such little appeal to Scripture, I have nothing to say about it. <laughs> Other New Testament teachers and professors will reluctantly address it because of how widespread it is in the consciousness of Western Christians due to the left-behind books and movies and other sources like the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And so this is one where I'm like, oh. again, people, of course people can land here in our church, it's fine. Uh, but it's just, it's... I have quite intentionally been trying to gently push against this view because um, it's, it's unheard of in the first 1,800 years of church history, which should be a little red flag. <laughs> um, uh, and look, the rapture is just nowhere in Revelation. People waiting for when the rapture is going to turn up in Revelation. It just doesn't. Now, I'm not, now, that's not controversial. Like Even the most hardcore dispensationalists agree on this. It's just not in there. Um, the idea is drawn from a or, in my opinion, literal interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's have a look at that. Uh, and informed by a few other uh, movies that you'll see at the bottom there. Um, and so, and this scripture says that when we who are alive, who are left, will be, caught, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This is the verse that uh, the idea of the rapture is based from. And so the question that... I think we need to be asking is when the original readers or hearers of 1 Thessalonians heard this, what did they hear? Because that might be different than from what we understand 2,000 years later. 
particularly for those of us today whose views on these sort of things have been informed by the last couple of hundred years of dispensational theology that's emerged, been popularised by books and movies. Um, and, uh, and when it comes to like, is there any scholars that sit behind this view? There's not. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of tally of like a lot of tally preachers get into this stuff. Um, fine. So what are the so the people that were listening to to this passage, the, the context of this passage is that it seems that some people in Thessalonia believed that those who were already dead might miss out on Jesus' return. And so like what if like, what if you're already dead when Jesus comes back? What happens? And again, interesting side note, they actually thought this could happen at any moment, which contradicts the dispensational theory anyway, but um, that there was these different, you know, whatever. Anyway, so, so Paul notes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught in the air with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so it will be with the Lord. The imagery used here would have been like, ah, oh, they would have got this when they heard this for the first time back in 2,000 years ago. The imagery used here about meeting in the air comes from a custom of the time in which people would send out a delegation outside of a city to receive a dignitary arriving in town. Think of Jesus' triumphal entry. They would meet them and then they'll come into the town with them. And, uh, and Paul tells us that both the dead and the living faithful will come with Jesus when he returns to earth. This is what this passage is saying. This is how it was understood, most scholars, or just every scholar, it's like this is how this passage was understood 1,800 years ago. So this rapture idea has got some weak scriptural foundations, but my, my critique of dispensational theology is not just the limited scriptural support, which is an issue. And again, it's fine. Again, fine if you want to land here. I'm going to present a few other views that are out there as well. But it's, like, but it's the thing that I've got most issue with is that this seems to be Folks that really have got into this are most likely to get really distracted by current world events and read into it biblical significance that I don't think is there. The other critique I've got is that this theology I've seen at its, at its, at its extreme has led to people um, removing themselves from society. I know people today that are living on self-sustaining farms because they believe that things are heating up right now and we're in world end times and all this stuff is starting to happen. And rather than being a faithful witness in church community together, they've withdrawn. And at the very worst, they troll on Facebook with their stuff, which drives me out the wall. So I, I just think there's, it's detached from an understanding, even like looking at our, our times and going, oh, this is very interesting and things are heating up and, oh, this is very special. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like reading this passage literally I can appreciate, if you like, a thousand years after Jesus died, I can appreciate us going out and going, is he coming back? And people did that in AD 1000. Now, there were some Gregorian calendars and Jewish calendars, and they were different, and so there was a few different discrepancies, 14 years difference on some of that stuff. That makes sense. I can appreciate that, and people did, and here we are. Um, but I think, I think this kind of thinking that our generation is a bit special, in my humble opinion, is classic, classic Western entitlement. The world has gone through times of incredible suffering and tribulation. I mean, just the beginning of the 19th century, in a few decades, World War I, Spanish flu, World War II, the Great Depression, 
I mean, you keep working your way back through history and you see that the world has endured a lot of suffering and tribulation. Earthquakes that blotted out the sun, diseases that killed millions and millions, wars that wiped out populations. Perhaps in context to the tribulation and suffering of history, the time we're living in right now is actually pretty sweet. Just throwing it out there. Anyway, so that's, that's that. I've got to speak to it. I hope that doesn't offend anyone. If you, there has been a view you've really held on to, I've lo- there are folks in this church that have really done that, and I've been so impressed with their humility over the last six weeks. Legends. Doesn't, a mind expanded never returns to its original size. You know? It's just good. And again, this is, we're not a group think here. The creeds are what hold us together. Jesus is Lord. We can unite around all that stuff. All right. So that's the first view. We're going we're gonna to move a little quicker through some of these. Post-millennial view. This is a, a very biblically uh, good view to hold on to. It's one that's not too common, but it's, uh, a, it's a view that scholars, some scholars hold. Basically, it's this idea that Jesus' return is ushered in by the church, outworking out its call to bring heaven to earth. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of people living will be saved. This will lead to a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and of nations. This increased percentage of the population who become believers who seek to live according to God's will, this naturally leads to greater and greater degrees of peace and justice within their respective communities. Folks that hold this view would point to the Great Commission, arguing it will be entirely successful. They may point to the Messianic Psalms, especially Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. They draw attention to the parables of Matthew 13, which seem to indicate the prodigious growth of the church. The reason that many of us will struggle with this view is our Western cynicism. (laughs) We're very cynical about whether the world's getting better. And may I suggest that while there is truth in that, that may also be because we are formed by a constant news cycle that highlights the worst. The media systematically skew data and trends and select stories to make people think that the world is getting worse. That is going to affect your worldview. That's why we talk about formation all the time. Everyone's getting formed. Their worldviews are getting formed and shaped. It's whether this is a worldview that's biblical and centered around Jesus or not. Um, So I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of pain and suffering and sin around, absolutely, but I think our vision is skewed. And I've pointed to this book in the past called Factfulness, which a lot of people found interesting. It actually points out that if you're looking at metrics like people living in extreme poverty, number of people getting educated, access to drinkable water, the progress of overcoming many diseases like polio, smallpox, measles, etc., etc., in many ways the world's getting better and better. So that can be quite jarring because we're so formed in terms of a news cycle. Uh, And while this may seem like an overly optimistic eschatology, it is one of the historical views on this passage, and perhaps we need to acknowledge that it reflects more on our formation than on whether this view holds water or not as to our struggle with it. It has biblical merit. merit. And so that's the post-millennial view on this passage. The last uh, view is amillennial. Uh, And this says that this thousand-year number is not literal. This, by the way, is where I've landed, if you're not wondering. This, uh, so basically, as we've talked about with Revelation, when Paul uses numbers, he's, uh, our Western literalism struggles with the fact that the numbers in Revelation are symbolic, all of them. 
led us to seven churches. Well, there was, that's more seven archetypes of churches. While they were directed to churches, there were more than seven churches around at the time. There were at least 12 into the region that Paul was writing to. Craig Coaster, in his book, Revelation and the End of All Things, says this, this non-literal sense fits with other references in Revelation. When John says that the allies of the beast receive kingly power for one hour, he means that their reign is brief, not that it lasts for exactly 60 minutes. When he refers to persecution lasting for three and a half year period, he repeats and varies the time reference so that it does not fall into a neat chronological pattern. When he multiplies, uh, when he uses multiples of a thousand to identify the number of tribes for a total of 144,000, he quickly alters the imagery in chapter seven to show that this same group actually consists of a multitude that no one could count. Similarly, John will use multiples of a thousand when stating the dimensions of the new Jerusalem not to tell readers how many square footage to expect in eternity, but to speak to its fullness and perfection. Fullness is what the thousand years signifies in Revelation chapter 20, according to Craig Coaster. It's just bizarre to me that there's all this sort of uh, numbers going on, and then all of a sudden we hit this passage and we're like, now we're going to switch back to literal. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, again, I'm not sure about that. Martin Day, who's speaking next week, writes this. How do we interpret, he's a mathematician and he's got very excited about some of these numbers. How do we interpret the thousand years of Christ's reign? He's like, recognizing the symbolism of John's numbers, we see that 1,000 is a cubed number. 10 times 10 times 10. Cubic numbers in Revelation stand for God and his holy people. So the thousand years refers to God's holy presence in the world manifested through his holy people, the church. Christ's reign on earth is already seen through the work of the church as his followers exercise his authority through the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. This for me is, uh, now again, I hold this lightly. I've been studied into humility. It's not a hill I'm going to die on, but it just makes the most sense in terms of the great arc of Scripture, in my opinion. Jesus comes, his kingdom is inaugurated, and then we have the symbolic millennium where Christ reigns in the church and through the hearts of believers. And then at some point, and even Jesus said, you're not going to know when, hello, uh, it's like, I'm going to return in glory. And so the kingdom is inaugurated, and then the kingdom comes in its fullness. And that's why, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is such an important prayer and worldview to have in terms of eschatology. One day he will bring the work to completion. He will restore all things, renew all things, heal all things. And then our job is to see that future reality break into the present here on that, and Lord, let it be in the Hawke's Bay as it is in heaven. And so that for me, it just... I find it strange that he creates the world with the story of Israel. He comes, the, the church, but then it gets really complicated for the last little bit. I'm like, this is so, anyway, it's just me, fine. And here's the thing. Um, I believe that Jesus' resurrection and ascension ushered in this present age, which are the last days, in my opinion. It's clear that the, the, in the epistles, they, they knew this. In 1 Thessalonians, it's all the way through this. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. So again, that's transform you. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast to the confession of our, hate, of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another onto love and good deeds, not, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Any day, just any day now. So, for me, there is the sense of 
the amillennial view sits more comfortably in, in a wider theological thing. And I think it makes sense in the context of Revelation personally. But as I say, the other two views uh, have, got very, have got good biblical merit and I'm like, fine. No, no dramas there. This is just where I've landed. Um, so those are the three views on the stuff. And the stuff matters and, the, and, and it's debated. But it, again, we've got to be careful we don't get sucked into the weeds here and lose sight of the trees or whatever the metaphor is. That's... Uh, <laughs> didn't write that metaphor down, did I? <laughs> here's what matters. Here's what matters. Because here's, here's my little critique of the Christian church in the West. As we've got very, some people got very, very worked up on this millennial stuff and all the rest of it. And yet, I think we've got an underdeveloped theology and eschatology on the stuff the Bible really emphasises. Here's what really matters as far as I'm concerned. Number one, Jesus is going to return. Hallelujah. He's going to bring the fullness of the kingdom and make everything right. Number two, the resurrection of the saints with physical bodies. Slightly less amens going on there. And thirdly, new heavens and new earth. And I rest my case. Exactly. Amen on the first one. The next two have just got lost in Christian thinking and the Bible's dripping with this imagery. We can get all excited about debated concepts like the rapture, which is an idea, I don't want to go into that. But then, at the, but, and we can even get into debating premillennialism, postmillennialism, fine. But we can't do that at the expense of a deeply developed theology of Jesus' return, resurrected bodies, and new heavens and new earth. Now, to, it's, a, it's a dramatic imbalance of what the Bible emphasizes. So this passage in Revelation speaks to Jesus' return, and we're really going to celebrate that stuff in the next, uh, next sermon. But here in Revelation 20, there's a couple of great promises of the resurrection. In verse 4, it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years rendered. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over, those, over these, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and Christ. And they'll reign with Him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection is the life that has been unleashed on the cross. In Matthew's Gospel, you've got this very tricky verses on uh, these people coming out of tombs as Jesus dies. Resurrection is something that's been unleashed on the world. And we're not under death, we're under new life. And baptism, it is the symbol of our death and also our resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Isn't that interesting? So if the thousand years, which I think is symbolic of this time now, in which the church lives out the way of Jesus and is faithful to him, it calls us to practice resurrection. And baptism is our first resurrection. And now we practice resurrection, as, as Eugene Peterson said, until he comes again in glory. And we have our second resurrection, which are these physical bodies, these new bodies, where we come to life and we reign with God. Uh, practicing resurrection is this brilliant it's this brilliant idea that Jesus promised us new life. And so now we practice living in that, in this age, yeah. until he uh, restores us in glory. Resurrection is a key theme of hope. 
uh, in the Bible. Romans 8 verse 3, Paul speaks about the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8 11, just as God raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Jesus, this is very clear for Paul because it was very clear for Jesus. Jesus uh, was like Jesus wasn't ambiguous about resurrected bodies. There was a sect of Jewish understanding called the Sadducees where they kind of formed this tribe that didn't believe in bodily resurrection. And it's one of the few times Jesus just outright says, you're wrong. Verse 23 of whatever passage it is. Oh no, I have just got the verses here. I think it's in Matthew somewhere. Anyway, the same day it says in verse 23 of some gospel somewhere. I uh, don't know what the chapter is either. Uh, the same day some Sadducees came to him saying, there is no resurrection and they asked him a question, blah, 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 blah. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Like it's just outright, Jesus believed in resurrection. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the dead will be raised imperishable. See also Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Um, uh, Paul, again, I can't believe I haven't pasted in the reference here, but you'll recognize this hopefully. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits is like, he's the first one. So now he's the prototype for what we are going to experience one day. Um, the creeds uh, were very clear, like they were prepared to die for this. I believe in the resurrection of the dead is what we confess in the creeds. This has been central to Christian hope and theology for so long. We need to restore it to the church. We will one day have resurrected bodies. Hallelujah. Let this fill you with hope. Now, here we go for those that have got aching bodies and who are outwardly wasting away, but inwardly being renewed by day, day by day. Here's N.T. Here's Wright here's on this. Listen to this. This new, this fill, let this fill you with hope, those that have got wonky hips, Beth to Kitty. Uh, this new body will be immortal. That is, it will have passed beyond death, not just in a temporal sense that it happens to have gone through a particular moment and event, but in the ontological sense of no longer being subject to sickness, injury, decay, and death itself. None of these destructive forces will have any power over the new body. That indeed may be one of the ways of understanding the strangeness of the risen body of Jesus. The disciples were looking at the first and so far the only piece of incorruptible physicality. If Paul is right, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self they will be when the body which God has wasting them in his heavenly storeroom is bought out, already made to measure and put on over the present one or over the self that will exist after this bodily death. This is like, this stuff is, is key Christian doctrine uh, and this hope grounds us because our hope is not a disembodied soul going to heaven. Resurrection is our future hope. That helps in our mission today as we seek to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. We work today for that because that leads us to the second great hope in the eschatological hope of a new heavens and a new earth. But Harvey, Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it, and the earth and, the heaven, and, the earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. Oh, you're preaching heresy, Harvey. What's happening here? I thought you just said the hope was a new heavens and a new earth. Well, yes, actually, in the next two chapters, there is a new heaven and a new earth. And, uh, and we're talking, uh, actually, about the heavens and the earth being transfigured and transformed. Um, this is why, again, as we read books like Revelation or any book of the Bible, context is really important. You can build all sorts of crazy theology by cherry-picking cherry -picking verses 
People have used it to justify slavery, all sorts of crazy stuff. You can do that. But in the chapter 21 and 22 and throughout the epistles and Jesus' uh, teaching, particularly in the, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, the hope was a new heavens and a new earth. Um, what's fleeing in this passage is the evil in these places. The earth and literally the sky, it's the Greek word uh, oranos, uh, the earth has been corrupted since humanity's sin in Genesis 3. The sky had been, has, has been seen as this corrupted place, the place of Satan's initial rebellion, which you can read about in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. So again, we're going to be careful not to how literally we engage with Revelation here because it's trying to provoke our imagination about what is happening. In the same way that Adam hid from the presence of God in shame, earth and heavens and the cosmos are broken and unable to look upon God's face the place of this wondrous presence of God. But then in verse 21, chapter 21 of Revelation, there is a new heavens and a new earth, a new earth and a sky, a new creation, a new cosmos. And it turns out to be the one, that the, the thing that fled has been restored. Just like uh, you've got these Easter icons in the Greek Orthodox Church of Christ lifting up Adam and Eve out of the grave. Create, in the same way, create creation has been lifted, lifted up and been renewed. God doesn't destroy. He renovates and he restores. Again, N.T. Wright from his book. Now, get, get next slide. Oh, no, tell me it's in here. Yes, thank you, Lord. Okay. Oh, freaked me out. Not because of the quote, you can't read that, it's too small, but because of this. I'm like, if you're going to read a book on eschatology, please don't read Left Behind. Try this one instead. Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church by N.T. Wright. Is it as easy to read as Left Behind? No. But sometimes like doing a bit of work is quite good for your spiritual growth. Not all, as I said this in the first sermon, not all things that are good for you are that easy. In fact, most things that are good for you aren't that easy. This is an important book on just helping everyday Joes like me and you understand uh, uh, what our biblical hope is. And in this book, he says this. As in Philippians 3, it is not we who go to heaven, it is heaven that comes to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to earth. This is the ultimate rejection of all types of Gnosticism. Now, what, again, you're like, oh, what does that mean? Gnosticism is basically this heresy in the early church that says all that matters are the spiritual things, the earthly, tangible things don't matter. Uh, and so that's like, and that got denounced hardcore as, her, as heretical. And that's the danger, though. We're like, oh, one day our souls are going to heaven. That's a Gnostic, like, when, oh, I don't have time. No. Oh, no, no, no. No. Stop it. All right, let's, let's go back to the quote. Just read the book. This is the ultimate rejection of all time. Of every worldview that sees the final goal is the separation of the world from God, of the physical from the spiritual, of earth from heaven. The, it is the final answer to the Lord's prayer that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1 verse 10, that God's design and promise was to sum up, sum up all things in Christ, both things both in heaven and on earth. It is the final fulfillment and rich symbolic imagery of the promises of Genesis 1 that the creation of male and female would together reflect God's image into the world. And it is the final accomplishment of God's great design to defeat and abolish death forever, which can only mean the rescue of creation from its present plight of decay. 
create, there's this renewing that's taking place in their age to come. And it's a world without rape and without abuse and without colleagues or friends committing suicide or without children being abandoned or beaten up in parks, you know, or uh, without people being sold as slaves or dying of starvation or cancer or car accidents, leaving young families behind. All of that stuff is dealt with by Jesus. And he makes a world where people are able to reflect who God made them to be rather than to strive to measure up to some nonsense standards of particular looks, popularity, fame, or fortune. It's a world where people are in right relationship with all and continually in the presence of God. That is our hope. And so those are the big things in both Revelation, but in the arc of Scripture in terms of eschatology. This is our hope. He will return in glory. We will have resurrected bodies. Now, N.T. Wright, the greatest mind, in my opinion, on Christian eschatology, he says, the Bible doesn't give us lots of detail. It's like a signpost into the mist. I like that. Broad strokes. We have to just be content with that. But the big strokes are, he'll return, resurrected bodies, new heavens and new earth. How that all looks, I'm not sure, but it's pretty cool to imagine. Pretty cool to imagine. So, as we come into land this morning, there's a tension that I think we need to sit with and we probably need to restore something here. Uh, we have to live in this healthy tension. When studying Revelation and eschatology, it's all too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to remain faithful to him at all costs because he will make things right in the end. He will bring justice. Whatever your view that you think best reflects the teachings of Scripture, we must always keep in mind that Scripture presents these pictures of the end as motivation for faithful living here in the present. As far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. Jesus taught it is wise to live with the sense of his impending return. The Lord is purifying his church right now. There's a whole, like there's a rest. And I'm like, whatever secret sin is in your life, deal with it. Bring it to the light. Let, whole, like, let a holy God bring grace and mercy and freedom to you. Because that's what this does. He may return at any second. That's, that's helpful to have in your reference and to live obediently in the present. So we live with this help. He's coming back. I'm going to have that there. But secondly, we also got to live with the humble reality that Jesus could return in a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years from now. I want you to let that sink in. Because there's an arrogance that emerges when we think our generation is the one living in end times. No. We've been living in the end times since Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, is our generation special? Well, yes, because Jesus loves this generation. That should be enough. And it's a very serious time. I'm not minimizing this time, mainly in terms of the effect of secularism on the church. This requires a serious response. We need to take discipleship very, very seriously at the moment. But this generation may not be that special in terms of Jesus' return. I would, say, I would actually say probably not. In fact, oh, I forgot this. This is the this is the, this is uh, the T-shirt that Barry gave me. Barry and Ange gave me. New, I don't normal not coming back, but Jesus is. This is great. This is very true. I 
I want to live in a way that has my grandchildren and great-grandchildren in mind. In particular, if I'm so focused that Jesus might return any second and the world's going to get burned up and escape it one day, that's going to impact how I live today. But if I have a more biblical theology of a new heavens and a new earth, and for example, I take the call of Genesis 1 seriously, that I am tasked with caring for and stewarding creation, and I'm humbly aware that we've been in the end time since Jesus ascended to heaven, then I will live in a way that I believe honors God's call on our lives, and we will passionately play our part to see future generations blessed because of our wise living today. What we think about the future matters and affects how we live today. And my hope is that today has been helpful to bring some clarity around what our hope is. Our focus is not trying to work out where we are, uh, where we're at in some end times puzzle. Our focus is on living the way of Jesus, living out that way of staying faithful to Him, and burning in our hearts the, the like letting those incredible promises that are laid out in the Bible about our future burn in our hearts and be sparked in our imagination. Jesus will return. We will rise in resurrected bodies and there will be a new heavens and new earth to enjoy forever. We come into land with this. Uh, in the Anglican church, normally as they finish um, the service or near the end of the service, they have this liturgical statement they pray every, uh, every Sunday. And I love it. And I want to finish with this this morning. Because there is a sense where I'm like, Lord, I'm longing for your return. Like I want your return. I want to live like it could be thousands of years, but at the same time, would you come? It would be great if you could come back. I'm tired of this broken world, and I'm not the only generation to feel this, and that's why these prayers get birthed. I love it. Glory to you, Lord Jesus, Lord Christ. Your death we show forth, your resurrection we proclaim, and your coming we await. Amen. And then achingly, come, Lord Jesus. Come back. Come return. Restore and redeem all things. But until that day... Help us to be faithful to you, to live passionately for you, to be, be like, like hard out, Jesus first, radical for the way of Jesus. And, uh, and that's my prayer for us, is that we would have that hope, because that puts in context our suffering today and the stuff we go through. Like we, we are, we've got to have that hope. At the same time, let's not get, I think, let's do some thinking and work through some of these scriptures so that helps us have good orthopraxy live well in the present so that we could be a blessing for generations to come. Let's stand together and pray.